Intravenous immune globulin, or IVIG, has a small group of FDA-approved indications, but the number of ways it's been used off-label amounts to a list that's almost 20-fold larger. Pooled from human plasma, IVIG is both an expensive and a limited resource. These constraints and others underscore the importance of ensuring that our clinical uses of IVIG are in line with what the literature best supports. So, because it's often employed off-label, it's worth asking, in what areas is the evidence for IVIG strongest? And are those areas consistent with how the agent is commonly used? You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD. Our guest is Dr. Michael Gabay, PharmD. A holder of both Juris and Pharmacy Doctorates, Dr. Gabay is a Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Pharmacy and Director of the University's Drug Information Group and Prior Authorization Services. Dr. Gabay, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Although I'm eager to ask you about the topic at hand, how IVIG has been used and is used off-label, it makes sense to start with a frame of reference. So with that said, what are some of the FDA-approved indications for IVIG? IVIG is kind of an anomaly in that there used to be more products available, so it had a wider range of FDA-approved indication a few years ago. But now currently there are only four FDA-approved indications for IVIG, and they include primary immunodeficiency, idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, or ITP, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and Kawasaki disease. Some of the older brands had approved indications for bone marrow transplantation and pediatric HIV infection, but none of the current brands do. Generally speaking, how does IVIG work? You know, that's a good question because the mechanism of action is very complex and it's not clearly understood how IVIG has its effects. But broadly speaking, the mechanism of action may be classified as occurring due to two separate mechanisms, immune supplementation and immune modulation. Now, for patients with primary and secondary immune deficiencies, IVIG obviously works more in immune supplementation because it restores immune function by increasing antibody levels and enhancing other immune functions. But most of the off-label use involves the second broad category of immune modulation. Since most of the off-label use is in diseases where there's an autoimmune component, there are several mechanisms that have been proposed for the immunomodulatory action of IVAG, including neutralization of autoantibodies, alterations of cytokines that may trigger inflammation, and some even propose a non-immune-related mechanism such as binding and removing of microbial toxins or targeting specific antigens in the body. Let's get into how healthcare professionals have used IVIG off-label. Do we have any sense of how prevalent the off-label use of IVIG actually is? Yes, we do have a sense, and there have been quite a few reviews of the topic in the biomedical literature. And in one of the reviews, they looked at clinical trials, case reports, and meta-analyses between January 1998 and December 2006, and they found up to 156 unlabeled uses. So there's quite a wide variety of indications that people have been using it for. Taken together with its complex mechanisms of action, it's almost a shotgun agent. It's just a broad approach to autoimmune disorders and other similar disorders. Yes, very much so. They've been using it in a lot of different types of off-label uses in a lot of different categories of disease states. What is the level of evidence behind some of IVIG's uh, more common uses, uh, say, in the area of neurology? You know, neurology is probably the biggest area of off-label use with the most published clinical data. There's a variety of disease states that have been studied. One of the more common ones is Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, which is a syndrome characterized by a lot of acute progressive motor weakness and sometimes sensory or autonomic dysfunction. And they're not really sure how this occurs, but 
they think there might be some immunologic destruction of myelin on the peripheral nervous system. And there have been multiple studies that look at IVIG in comparison to some of the more standard therapies, including steroids and plasma exchange. And data from these studies have shown that IVIG is pretty similar with regards to plasma exchange and with regards to outcomes, clinical outcomes in the clinical studies. So IVIG is actually considered equivalent to plasma exchange in the treatment of Guillain-Barre syndrome, but it's often used more frequently because there's not a lot of availability of plasma exchange, and a lot of people have vascular access issues, such as children and adults with poor veins, so they can't really use plasma exchange effectively. Some of the other neurologic disorders it's been used for include chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, or CIDP. Again, this is another disease where there's progressive weakness, sensory loss, absence of neurologic reflexes. This is different from Guillain-Barre syndrome because chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, or CIDP, progresses slowly over months, whereas Guillain-Barre syndrome can be very acute. And trials have shown that IVIG improves disability within two to six weeks as compared to placebo and has similar efficacy to both plasma exchange and steroids. Multifocal motor neuropathy is another neurologic condition where it has been used, and there are several randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials that have found IVIG to provide efficacy. In some of the studies, more than 80% of patients receiving IVIG reported improvement. There are even data with this particular disease state to suggest a long-term beneficial effect with maintenance IVIG therapy. Multifocal motor neuropathy is generally unresponsive to plasma exchange, and so it cannot really be used in that situation. And steroids can actually exacerbate the problem. So IVIG tends to be the safest therapy to use either alone or in combination with some type of cytotoxic immunosuppressant. And finally, multiple sclerosis. There have been at least three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled studies demonstrating some benefit of IVIG in the reducing exacerbations of multiple sclerosis. They've also found in the meta-analysis that it reduced disability scores, annual relapse rates, number of patients who's deteriorated over time and actually reduced new lesions on the MRI, the magnetic resonance imaging scans. Currently, though, IVIG is generally classified as a second-line agent in multiple sclerosis behind standard therapies such as the interferons and copaxone. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD Radio XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Our guest is Dr. Michael Gabay, clinical assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Pharmacy and director of the university's Drug Information Group and Prior Authorization Services. We're discussing the evidence behind our clinical uses of IVIG or intravenous immune globulin. Dr. Gabay, how has the literature supported the use of IVIG in the dermatologic setting? That's been an area where we've seen actually more support of it over the recent years, particularly for incidences of toxic epidermal necrolysis and Steven Johnson syndrome, which are potentially fatal disorders where people get dermatologic emergencies from reactions to drugs or things of that nature. They're primarily case reports, but there are some prospective and retrospective multi-center studies they have shown that early administration of high-dose IVIG helps to resolve the disease and actually reduce fatalities. There are some conflicting reports out there as well with regards to these two conditions, but most people appear to support the idea of using IVIG early, given that it can actually reduce risk of mortality. Another area in derm where there 
there's been some benefit is in autoimmune blistering disorders. And these are basically diseases that involve the skin and mucous membranes. Again, another autoimmune component to it. Historically, they were treated with high-dose steroids and immunosuppressive agents. But more recently, there was a consensus statement from the American Academy of Dermatology published even that stated that even though there are no controlled studies in this arena, all published data that has been done is primarily prospective open-label studies or case reports. They do recommend the use of IVIG in certain situations where conventional therapy failed, where there are significant adverse effects with conventional therapy, where patients might have contraindications to therapy, or when there's progressive disease. So IVIG has gotten a role as mainly a second-line agent based upon case reports, open-label studies in the area of autoimmune blistering disorders. And how has IVIG been used in the area of obstetrics? Obstetrics is another interesting area. There are several reports of a beneficial role for IVIG in patients that have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome and obstetric complications related to that. There are case series that have demonstrated that the use of IVIG resulted in successful pregnancy outcomes in these patients and was also beneficial in patients with antiphospholipid syndrome undergoing some sort of in vitro fertilization process. Although, again, here's another area where there's some disagreement as there has been a meta-analysis that looked at the various therapies you can try for antiphospholipid syndrome, including warfarin, heparin, aspirin, steroids, and they didn't see an improved outcome with IVIG, and they also saw maybe a possible association with increased pregnancy loss or prematurity. The other area where it's been used with the data has not been that great, has been in recurrent spontaneous abortion. Some people believe that the underlying cause of recurrent miscarriage may be immune-mediated. So they have done some studies that have shown a productive benefit of IVIG administration in pregnant women that have this history. But other reviews, systematic reviews of these trials have demonstrated no benefit. It remains controversial because there's really not a lot of therapies to give to these women. So IVIG may be an option and you don't want to really close the door on it. And ethically speaking, I have to imagine, it's also difficult to conduct trials or almost any study aside from observational ones in that patient population. Yeah, very difficult to do so. Can you think of a couple of IVIG uses where the literature support is fairly weak? There are quite a few that I can think of. Just a couple, for example, um, one would be asthma. They have historically tried to give IVIG to asthmatic patients that have been on very high doses of inhaled and oral steroids to control their asthma symptoms, thinking that administration of IVIG might be a steroid-sparing agent. But the controlled studies have shown contradictory results. One failed to show any benefit, and the other showed a reduction in steroid requirements, but no more than that. So really, most patients with asthma that are on continuous high-dose steroids, IVIG may not be an option. Other disease states include autism. Autistic children sometimes have abnormalities in their immune system. That suggests there might be an immune component to the pathophysiology of their disease, but a lot of open trials involving small numbers of children have shown no benefit. Cystic fibrosis is another one. Randomized control trials have shown no added benefit to giving IVIG in this patient population. There is a small subset of patients that have hypogammaglobulinemia or a reduction in immune globulin. And they may have a benefit, but it really has nothing to do with cystic fibrosis itself. And then dilated cardiomyopathy. They've done placebo control trials in that area, and there really has been no benefit over placebo. 
Now, those areas that you were just talking about where the evidence is fairly weak, asthma, autism, CF, and, and dilated cardiomyopathy, I assume that in the studies that have been done, they were using IVIG as sort of a maintenance or a controller med? Yeah, generally. They, yeah, they were using it as a maintenance med. Well, in the asthma patients, to see basically if they could do some steroid sparing, but in the other ones, they think that there's some kind of autoimmune component or immune component to the disease state, and so they've compared it versus placebo just to see if they could improve the disease state, and they didn't see the effects they wanted to see. What are the risks associated with IVIG in the, in the way of adverse events? There are quite a few, actually. Probably the most common, though, is infusion-related reactions, which for the most part are mild and self-limiting, and they generally occur more often in people who have not received IVIG before and occur within 30 to 60 minutes after the start of the infusion. If you're going to have those reactions, they usually manifest as like a low-grade fever, chills, headache, myalgias, backache. Rarely do you see anaphylactic reactions. This is generally seen in patients, though, who are IgA deficient, and those are at greatest risk of developing anaphylactic reactions. In the last maybe three or four years, we saw the package labeling change for all IVIG products to include a warning for transfusion-related acute lung injury. There have been some rare reports of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, usually within one to six hours after onset of administration of IVIG. Then other adverse effects include aseptic meningitis, which again is rare. They're not really sure why it occurs. They think maybe there's an inflammatory reaction when the IVIG gets into the intrathecal component and therefore you develop this aseptic meningitis. There are some risk factors though, and they include high-dose therapy, IVIG-naive patients, and those with a history of migraine. Thrombotic events were another thing that the FDA had issued warnings about a few years back, and they saw thrombotic events including stroke, MI, DVT, and PE. And they think that IVIG increases blood viscosity and then may enhance platelet aggregation, causing these types of thrombotic events. Again, rapid infusions and high-dose therapy have been associated with these events, and people at high risk include the elderly and people with a history of cerebrovascular disease or atherosclerosis, and finally, renal failure. This tends to occur most commonly with those products that have sucrose in them as a stabilizer, and they think that sucrose accumulates in the renal tubules of the kidney, causing a direct damage to those tubules. We've been talking with Dr. Michael Gabay about therapeutic use of intravenous immune globulin, both on-label and off. Dr. Gabay, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm Dr. Charles Turk. You've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD Radio XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.